0: Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Evald Novotny, the author of Laban, probably best translated in its context as Your Money and Your Life, published in October by Brown Mueller. Professor Novotny today calls himself an independent economist, but for 11 years from the collapse of Lehman Brothers until September last year, he ran the Austrian National Bank and was a high-profile member of the European Central Bank's Governing Council. A professor of economics in Vienna and Linz, he was elected to the Austrian Parliament as a Social Democrat in 1978. He has served as a vice president of the European Investment Bank and a CEO of private bank Bavag before his nomination to the central bank in 2008. As the title of the book implies, it's a description of growing up in post-war Vienna and of a political and literary education, as well as a tu- as a memoir of a turbulent decade. In European banking and economic policy making. Evald, welcome to the podcast.
1: Good morning, Tim. Glad to hear you.
0: Um, many people have passed through the ECB's Governing Council since its creation, but only a few have written about the experience, and nobody to my knowledge, has written both a policymaking memoir and a personal autobiography. What made you decide to be the first one to do this?
1: Yeah, this was exactly my idea, that I think it might be of interest uh, to give a bit of an uh, information uh, about how, how do you reach your decisions, uh, who is uh, the person uh, behind the official side, what is the education, what is the political development, and uh, of course uh, you cannot generalize this, so I concentrate on my own experiences in these three areas, uh, the area of uh, economic theory, so as a professor, uh, the area of politics, and the area of banking.
0: Yeah, and as I alluded to at the beginning, um, you explain that the title is a reference to the old threat from highwayman: Your Money or Your Life. Yes. And that you you, you wanted to challenge the idea uh, the idea of antithesis you know as as a philosophy of life could you could you explain more what you mean by that
1: uh, perhaps it was a bit uh, simpler than that uh, it was just that uh, of course in my in my life in my career i had to do a lot uh, with money money affairs and uh, in fact as i'm showing in this book uh, i'm interested in monetary affairs since my kind of uh, a childhood already Uh, but uh, uh, this is based on lifelong experiences and uh, in uh, in private experiences it was for me very important also to show in this book uh, that uh, you are not uh, kind of doing this alone but that you are part of a, a group of people who help you starting with your family starting with your friends Uh, With, uh, in in my case, it was very important for me that uh, as an academic, I had been assistant uh, uh, to Professor Kurt Rothschild, so where I learned a lot, both for life and for economics. Mm -hmm. And so this combination was what uh, uh, was my uh, idea about writing this book.
0: Yeah, and alongside your academic career, you, you made an early commitment to social democratic politics and ended up as a, as an elected politician in in, in your mid thirties. Can you tell us how that came about? Um, your your proximity to to the very famous Chancellor Bruno Kreisky and how much those politics still inform uh, inform your your worldview.
1: Yes, this is something I describe. <coughs> Excuse me. I describe in this in this book. Uh, on the one hand, of course, uh, my my family is a kind of uh, a bourgeois family, mm-hmm. but uh, both my father and uh, my mother had been already social democrats, uh, the first uh, in this uh, family life. So, of course, I grew up in some way with these uh, with these uh, ideas. Uh, I then, at a rather early start, uh, became, as a student already, um, uh, I worked with the Austrian trade union movement uh, as an economic uh, assistant. Uh, So I came in touch with this, uh, uh, let's say with the practical side. And uh, then in my student uh, times, I became a member of the social democratic students. When I then moved um, uh, to the University of Linz, I kind of abandoned uh, politics for quite some time. And uh, then I was uh, kind of called again as an economic expert by uh, Chancellor Kreisky, uh, whom I knew since quite some time. And I was a good friend with his, his son, Peter. Uh, and uh, as I say in this book, I was not too eager. Uh, to mm. enter politics, because I felt very comfortable in my uh, life as a professor. And I remember Bruno Kreisky saying to me, you are much too young uh, to live a comfortable life. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of accepted this, that one has a certain duty uh, to to the public. And so for about 20 years, I had kind of a double life. On the one hand, as a professor, I was fully active as a uh, a teacher first at the University of Linz and then at the Economic University of Vienna uh, and as a member of parliament, where I became the chairman of the finance Committee.
0: Yeah, it seemed to me that in the book there were two um, areas where perhaps your social democratic politics are, are, are still present. One was several times you talked about how Portugal was a... Uh, a good example in your view of a pragmatic uh, middle ground between fiscal consolidation and the need for, for growth expansion. Um, But also when you're looking at um, more generally at the, at the the sort of long crisis in banking and the, and and, and the impact of rising asset prices, you, you talk about the need for a good social housing uh, program. In, 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 the, in developed countries. Am I right in picking out those two areas of where your politics are still present in your, in your economic views?
1: Uh, it is perhaps a, a bit uh, more fundamental than that mm. uh, because uh, what I also describe in this book is uh, my priority for politics of full employment mm. uh, because uh, I see unemployment not only as an economic problem, but also as a vast uh, social problem, and uh, I describe in my uh, stay in the U.S. I had uh, uh, working at Harvard University, and I met uh, a number of uh, uh, Austrians who had uh, to flee the Nazis, and with whom we talked about how how the Nazis succeeded in gaining uh, uh, majorities, and it was uh, really mainly due to this horrible. Uh, unemployment of the big economic crisis of the 1930s, which was especially, especially horrible uh, in Austria. So for me, uh, a policy of full employment is an economic issue, but very much also a social issue and also a political issue. Uh, You know that uh, the ECB has uh, as a primary goal price stability, the Federal Reserve in the US, they have a so-called double mandate. So that means price stability and full employment. And basically, of course, as a governor, uh, I followed uh, the, the legal uh, <clears throat> basis of the ECB. But uh, uh, de facto, I always had uh, the employment effects in mind, which is, of course, not really a problem in this time that we lived where we had, uh, of course, the need for expansionary policy, monetary policy. Uh, anyhow, so this is my my basic uh, point, and uh, it is uh, also today uh, my uh, what I see as the first challenge uh, for economic uh, for economic policy. Uh, this uh, the rest are kind of side effects, of course. Uh, that, uh, for instance, uh, I discussed this with regard to housing. Where I clearly have the opinion that interest rate policies, policy of giving loans to households who cannot afford to buy back these loans mm-hmm. ends in a disaster. This is exactly what happened in the, in the U.S., uh with uh, uh, uh this uh, this was kind of a politically oriented uh, policy to to afford to make housing affordable for poor so to make them uh, let's say closer uh, to to bring them in in the capitalist uh, surrounding but it's uh it, it didn't work. Uh, it uh, was one of the reasons for this big uh, uh, housing uh, catastrophe that we had. So therefore, I think it is if you want to do social policy, you have to do it directly, for instance, via social housing. And so I think it is important to see what can you do via monetary policy and what can you not do where you need different uh, direct approaches from the public sector.
0: Yeah, do, do you think in in real terms there is a great difference between the the single mandate and the dual mandate of, of the of the of the great central banks because as you as you implied there um when you're setting interest rate policy with an eye on inflation in the future I mean clearly employment is going to be an absolutely crucial factor in that in any case. So it, it, do you think it's overstated the difference between the single and the dual mandate?
1: Uh, well, there might be a difference if we, not at the moment, where we have uh, extremely low inflation rates, so that, therefore, uh, the, the aim of uh, price stability uh, is also needs expansionary monetary policy. As uh, you know, the ECB defines price stability. As an inflation rate of uh, not above but close to two percent, so we are way uh, below. So therefore, it goes the same way. It could become uh, a problem in this when we see uh, kind of um, uh, increasing inflation, and this this is exactly the discussion that we have just now uh, at in the U.S. where the U.S. Um, Policy says that uh, we uh, uh, will, if we have had a time of uh, underachievement uh, in inflation, of uh, too low inflation, we may have to accept a time where inflation may be above the target. Uh, this this is uh, at least as yet not the policy of the ECB, but uh, there is, uh, like other central banks. The ECB also in the process uh, of uh, a policy review, mm. and we will see the outcome of this policy review.
0: So this is the idea of, of a, a sort of period of catch up for having missed the inflation target for such a long yeah, it's, period. Yes,
1: it's it's called inflation averaging. So mm. that, uh, and uh, the basic idea is uh, to give uh, a message uh, uh, to the markets uh, an expansion message to the markets. Uh, How effective this is, is something to to be debated. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. But uh, anyhow, uh, we have had uh, a practical experience uh, when we had the first first, uh, banking crisis after 2008. Uh, Then there was a certain uh, upswing in the economy. And at this time, the ECB already increased interest rates. Uh, but out of yeah. fear that this might uh, have uh, higher inflationary effects, uh, this was clearly a mistake. Uh, Mario Draghi, the first thing Mario Draghi did was to revise uh, to revise this because uh, it uh, caused a double dip uh, in the European economy uh, in contrast to the U.S. And this is one of the main reasons why economic growth in the U.S. had been much stronger. Than economic growth uh, in the euro
0: area. Yes, but as you as you say in the book, the the, the main problem there seemed to be that the governing well, t- two two issues. The governing council had the um, uh, the separation principle, but also you were looking very much at inflation in, in the short term rather than in the sort of medium to long term as 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 a genuine threat coming from uh, an endogenous threat from the economy. But you you make a very interesting point um, later in the book, where you're looking at the the potential ideas for the ECB strategy review, where you say that you had been a you had been sceptical about this idea of um, pursuing uh, or, or communicating to markets that you intended to get inflation above two percent for a period, because. It wasn't really credible in this environment, and isn't that the problem at the moment? That Mark, even if the ECB said we intend for inflation to exceed two percent for a long period, um, the markets just can't believe that inflation is going to get to that level for, for for a very long time.
1: Yeah, this definitely is a problem. One has to be aware that uh, the long term developments of inflation rates are only partially. Uh, Due to the policies of central banks, Mm. but we have long-term economic trends uh, of what is called the natural rate of inflation. That means the rate of inflation without influence of central banks, that this uh, natural rate of inflation has a downward trend. And there are a number of explanations for that. One is uh, the effects of globalization. Uh, that uh, clearly uh, mean a higher uh, higher kind of competition uh, in the world economy and a downward trend in prices. another, another, uh, another aspect is that uh, uh, to a certain extent, the, the what's called structural reforms de facto meant a weakening of the power of trade unions, so that uh, wage increases, are much lower than uh, to be expected. This is this uh, problem of the so-called Phillips curve. So we have kind of, uh, also without central bank policy, we have a trend towards lower inflation rates. And uh, I think this is something where where central banks in some way have to adjust because uh, uh, as I said, it is a problem of credibility if you have an inflation goal where you sh- are pretty sure that you will not achieve it, even, let's say, in the, in the medium term.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I recommend any ECB watchers to read this book, in particular Chapter 17, The, the Life of a Governing Council Member. And, and here you take us through the two- to 3 today day experience of attending the meetings in Frankfurt and and, and really how this changed between the presidencies of Jean-Claude Trichet and Mario Draghi could you expand on this uh, for, for for listeners about how how the process changed during those those two periods well
1: of course uh, you see the governing council uh, consists of uh, uh, the the governors of the uh, European uh, central banks uh, that are part of the Euros the euro area and the executive board of the ecb So this is uh, a group that is, of course, uh, uh, has also some kind of group dynamics, uh, like every group. And uh, uh, it is a group where we have kind of different uh, traditional traditions to follow. So we have, of course, let's say, the group of uh, what had been called the hard currency countries, that means uh, Germany, and the countries that uh, historically had pegged their currency to Germany, like uh, the Netherlands, and also like like Austria, uh, we have of course uh, uh, the, gr- the group of the southern countries, uh, and it is uh, always uh, uh, a great challenge uh, to kind of to combine these different traditions. Uh, with uh, uh, Trichet, uh, he took great pains uh, to get uh, at kind of an. Uh, Unanimous agreement. So we had rather long sessions. And at the end of the day, I think we reached some compromises. Uh, uh, Mario Draghi uh, had uh, kind of a different approach, especially uh, in in the later years of his uh, tenure, uh, where he wanted to reach uh, uh, quite fast results and uh, was more prepared also to take a vote and to have. majority decisions so that uh, makes quite a substantial difference for the total uh, kind of atmosphere of a group um, as far as I understand now with uh, Madame Lagarde I think she's again more uh, trying to get this um, more uh, kind of compromise oriented approach and in any case in a uh, time of a big crisis as we have it now with uh, COVID uh, it is quite clear that uh, there is de facto only one sensible approach. So there would not be many differences in the governing council. It is in times that are kind of more normal times that these different approaches uh, may appear.
0: Yeah, I, I, I was particularly interested in what you said about the, the monetary policy accounts. The, are these are the sort of minutes or summaries of the meetings that are published a few weeks after after the meeting. And you say that, given the pressure to claim unanimity, which was very important as a as a communication to markets um, you say that that gave governors leverage to get their real opinions uh, across in the accounts <laughs> was that a very common maneuver by by people?
1: Well there have not been that many occasions where this was <laughs> relevant because. <clears throat> I would say for 90% of all decisions, there was basic unanimity in the governing council. But of course, it's these uh, uh, issues where there is no common uh, perspective that are most interesting. And yes, this there, of course, it was uh, some kind of uh, a way to achieve some kind of compromise. And as uh, we are all aware that. Uh, the, the accounts are read by the markets very, very in a very uh, kind of um, exact way. Uh, one, one really has, uh, every, every word has a meaning. Uh, I think it's even more important uh, in the report of the president uh, before he has his press conference, after a uh, monetary policy uh, meeting of the governing council, uh, this, uh, this written uh, <clears throat> report uh, is uh, something that is also discussed before before the president reads it um, uh, to, the, to the journalists. And again, here every, every single word make give a message to the markets. So it is something that you, very, you really have to take your time uh, to discuss it and this was exactly the main field where there have been some, some discussions.
0: Is there is there a structural problem here in the sense of the and you do touch on this that the very large size of this committee um, that eventually led, for example, to the frustration of Draghi that that you say that he he developed a kitchen cabinet and 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 the wider committee uh, ended up being sometimes ignored. So yeah. you know, if you if you were starting again, would 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 the council be smaller? Do you think? it would
1: be very difficult to uh, to achieve uh, this uh, uh, but uh, there could there, there would be another model uh, as you mentioned uh, I had been for some time a vice president of the European Investment Bank mm-hmm. which is also a European institution in the, in the European Investment Bank we have a, let's say a two-class society in some way that uh, the big countries have are permanently represented at the executive board, and the smaller uh, the the smaller parties, uh, mm-hmm. so the smaller countries uh, are part of constituencies. So that uh, let's say five smaller countries together have form a constituency, and they have uh, then uh, a member uh, in the executive board. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, uh, and this is a bit also the same as we have it uh, in the International Monetary Fund. Uh, That might be perhaps more uh, effective in some way. On the other hand, of course, uh, central bank policy is a very, very sensitive issue. For every member country of the euro area, it was not so easy uh, to give up their national currency for the euro so that... uh, uh, it uh, made uh, it made sense uh, to have um, uh, to have uh, all member countries uh, on board. N- now, with the increasing number of members of the eurozone, there is an agreement that uh, f- uh, the the number of voting members uh, will be reduced. Is uh, uh, will be reduced or will not be e- equal uh, to the number of those mm. members that there, but uh, and this is a kind of uh, <clears throat> uh, changing every half year or so. Uh, it doesn't make much of a difference because still, and I think this is correct, you are able to sit on the table. So, I think this is uh, uh, as. One has to see (laughs) Uh, monetary policy, we have this very specific issue that in the EU system, monetary policy is uh, a European affair, at least for the euro countries, Mm. Uh, which I think is a very good thing and which is a progress, but still means that there has to be some kind of representation. Uh, As you know, fiscal policy is still not a European affair. And there you have the ministers directly, uh, kind of bargaining with each other. I think this more discreet system of the ECB is better.
0: Yeah, a- a- actually, on that point, you 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 make it something. You make a point in the book that is has real resonance today. Um, uh, you you took over the, the national bank just and just two weeks later, Lehman Brothers fi- filed for bankruptcy protection. And you said during that crisis period, you said I've learned that crisis management is still most effective on the ground, and personal presence cannot be replaced by electronic communication. Obviously, this is very relevant now. Um, what, why, in your view, does it matter so much to have this this face to face interaction? Is is it very is it difficult to make negotiation work uh, remotely?
1: Well. <laughs> uh- the, the 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 official meetings are only the tip of an iceberg mm. so uh, when we when we come to to frankfurt of course there are a lot of bilateral talks there are uh, kind of uh, you get some kind of additional information All this is much more difficult if it is not a physical meeting uh, of course um, uh, in times like these there is no real alternative. Uh, and it is working because it can be based uh, on, on on form of physical meetings. So you know each other. So, so you can have a conference, uh, <clears throat> an electronic conference, better if you, if you know each other and so on. But I would uh, be really, very concerned uh, if this would uh, be for a longer period of time and uh, i think that uh, especially for these policy meetings uh, physical presence is quite uh, important it's different from purely technical aspects Mm. Uh, so this this is something that you uh, can uh, can do online but uh, if it is about formation of policies i think the physical presence is important
0: Coming back to, to policy, you say, um, you say in the book that the ECB has assigned great importance to, to forward guidance. So this is this idea that central banks um, uh, give an intention about where interest rates will be over a long period um, and, and other factors, but mostly interest rates. But you say this importance, this great importance, in, in your view, has been too great. I think others would argue that this has been a highly successful policy and, and comparatively cheap. What, what do you have against it? What is, what is your problem with, with what the ECB has done? Uh,
1: you see, there is, um, let's say, one school in economics that is uh, very much based on expectations and uh, especially rational expectations. And uh, this forward guidance in some way uh, is an outcome of this uh, economic thinking. I am personally not so sure whether this is really that decisive for for market uh, participants. Uh, Market uh, participants uh, have, uh, uh, in my view and my experience, much more influenced by uh, direct uh, <clears throat> uh, short term uh, experiences and short term views uh, they can be influenced if you have a clear a clear policy uh, in some way which is an, an overall policy uh, but uh, just uh, uh, the, the the promise to keep let's say interest rates uh, uh <clears throat> low for long term, as such, I think would not be very powerful, if it is not uh, combined with uh, an actual perspective, that this is will be the case, but it will be the case anyhow. Uh, uh, so, um, uh, and you could not do forward guidance, uh, or I think it would not be successful, if it would be in pure contradiction to what the markets accept or uh, accept, uh, expect from market perspe- uh, perspectives. So uh, I think it is, it is an element, yes, but uh, uh, it is uh, uh, perhaps not uh, too decisive. And it has one important uh, problem that comes with it. That means that central bank policy then uh, becomes, uh, not, not only is influencing the markets, But the market and market expectations also influence very much monetary policy, Hmm. uh, which in some way might be okay. So uh, one should not necessarily surprise markets. But I think in some instances, uh, it makes sense uh, to surprise markets and uh, thus uh, avoid uh, some speculative bubbles. So in my book, uh, I... uh, I also reviewed the policy of the Federal Reserve uh, in the U.S., uh, where they sometimes surprised markets, uh, which was criticized very much, uh, but which I think was the right thing to do.
0: Yes, I was I was racking my brain trying to think of recent examples of um, central bank surprising markets deliberately. I mean, it's been done accidentally a few times. And and the yes, the obvious one was the, was the Fed's... Um, Taper tantrum, yeah. I
1: mean, yeah. I think sorry, um, uh, which which uh, which got a very (laughs) very bad (laughs) press, but I think this taper tantrum uh, was uh, was necessary in some way, just to 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 show that uh, uh, just to say be careful, there are there are risks with your expectations.
0: Do, do you think once we're coming out of this crisis, th- the market will do its own work for it in the sense that um, the, 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 the negative impact this year has been so enormous that the market expectations for a bounce are actually quite uh, heavily optimistic, which means that expectations will, in all sorts of areas, including interest rates, will probably uh, change very quickly as well? Um, or, or do you think that, that central is – there, is there a danger of um, the central banks implying that uh, rates will stay much uh, at these kind of rates for a much longer period? Well, of
1: course, just now we have a huge amount of uncertainty. So, so therefore, as long as, as we have this, I think uh, the policy of the central banks has uh, to be uh, to try to reduce uncertainty. The first point is uh, to really to provide liquidity uh, to uh, more or less unconditional uh, whatever is needed. Uh, and the other one is in this case also uh, with regard to, to, to interest rates uh, to have a policy of long-term low interest rates. So I think in this in this kind of uh, a very deep crisis, it is uh, quite obvious, and I think there is also no, no major differences uh, among the members of the governing council. Things get more more diverse uh, if we have uh, uh, a change, the better, and especially if this economic improvement is not uniform, but uh, some countries uh, are getting out of the crisis faster than others. And then, I think then we will have to, uh, this will be a time of perhaps uh, difficult discussions.
0: But I'm, uh, I'm
1: afraid this <laughs> will yeah. come at a much later later date.
0: Yes. Well, you say something quite intriguing, actually, to, towards the end of the book, where you, you, uh, you say that your views are close to those of Adair Turner, uh, the idea of partial direct central bank money creation. Are, are you implying there that the, the pandemic-related asset purchases should essentially be forgiven or, or, or retired. What, what are you implying when you, when you make that uh, comment? Well, what you see is, of course,
1: that uh, there's a kind of uh, side effect uh, of uh, the crisis. Uh, we have a huge increase of public debt, and... Uh, And uh, this uh, huge increase of public debt uh, poses no problem as long as we have very low interest rates. But uh, it would be, I think, dangerous that, uh, therefore, the the volume of debt is kind of dictating interest rate policy. Hmm. And therefore, I think it makes sense to make uh, a distinction between these two elements and so that a part of this uh, public debt is uh, public debt, uh, would be a public debt uh, to central banks. Uh, the, the problem of monetary financing is, of course, that it might have uh, uh, inflationary effects if it is not properly controlled. And uh, I think that uh, the ECB is the most uh, independent central bank of the world, because uh, the independence is enshrined in the EU treaties, Mm. and there is no way how to change these treaties. This is different from, let's say, the US, uh, where uh, the independence of the Fed is based on American laws, and these laws can be changed. So therefore, the ECP is really independent, and therefore, a certain amount of uh, uh, monetary financing could be done via the ECB without uh, 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 problems of uh, dangers of inflation. So, for instance, what I allude is that, for instance, uh, the financing of the ESM, of the European Stability Mechanism, is, I think, there is no real good economic uh, foundation why it has to be done on the capital markets i think this is something that uh, could be done by the ecb by the ecb because it is something that can be controlled uh, so to be on the on the right way one has to say of course uh, this uh, we are bound by the european treaty again it will be not not easy to change the european treaties in this way but uh, as now let's say a free thinking economist i think that this might be a very important element if we want to have to get a new positive equilibrium for the European economy,
0: yeah, I could see a problem there with the ESM in that uh, during this crisis, governments have been reluctant to go to the ESM. What what instead has happened is that the ECB has stepped in with the pandemic uh, emergency purchase program, and we've had the creation of this new uh, recovery facility that will that will come next year so realistically if you were to have a monetary financing solution to this crisis it seems to me that the only solution would be for the for the ecb to retire the element of the balance sheet that's come from the PEp purchases do you think that would be possible
1: well technically <laughs> yes legally it would be a, a challenge of course yeah uh, <clears throat> And uh, uh, but uh, I think and therefore it, uh, it, it is not a, it will be a very long process of rethinking in this way. But uh, uh, one has to be aware that the situation of uh, uh, a single member country of the eurozone is very different from the situation of uh, a country that has public debt, in their own currency, like the US, like Japan. Uh, in these cases, uh, there is never kind of a default risk because, uh, rightly so, markets uh, know that the central bank would, uh, uh, would intervene. Uh, for a country of the eurozone, the euro is a, technically a foreign currency. So that means they, uh, they cannot create this currency uh, they have no access to finance to, to monetary financing, uh, so that means a country of the eurozone technically can go into default, and we have seen that this uh, is a, a situation where we were very close at this uh, uh, in in some cases, and so therefore I think one has to develop some kind of um, additional instruments that uh, create a, a combination, a connection between fiscal policy and monetary policy.
0: But but in your view, that would probably require a, a, a treaty amendment?
1: Yes, I think one has to be quite uh, aware of that. So it is not something uh, yeah. that uh, uh, could develop into uh, short-term uh, <clears throat> changes. But uh, on the other hand, uh, you could uh, have some kind of intermediate uh steps this is why i bring in uh, the esm so that you could have some kind of inter- intermediation uh, way that at least as far as i see it uh, would be in line with
0: the european treaties and i guess that might in turn make borrowing from the ES- esm more attractive <laughs> Uh, well, this is this is then uh, uh, a
1: different aspect. <laughs> and as you as you know, the ESM is aware of this problem, and uh, therefore, uh, there is uh, the ESM has developed also uh, a lending program that is uh, kind of less stringent than the traditional one. Uh, the problem with the ESM, of course, is the ESM. Uh, is not a supranational institution, uh, it is uh, based uh, on it's, uh, an, um, an international institution, uh, so that uh, there is uh, it, it, every decision needs the direct agreement of the member countries, in some cases even including a parliamentary uh, agreement. So that is uh, kind of a technical problem, but uh, this is in the field of the ASM, and I think uh, basically it was uh, a progress to have this, and it may have now to evolve in some way. Yeah.
0: Well, I ha- uh, my final question um, and since this is a podcast about books, you 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 write about your love of books uh, in in your in your book, um, which is so great that you came close to buying a bookshop. Um yes. In, in, in I'm your- not,
1: not very successful I have to say. No.
0: <laughs> well, it, it, close but no, yeah, no no cigar. Um have you during your retirement have you had the opportunity to 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 do a lot of read uh read uh, reading both in economics and outside it and do you have a an economics book for example that you've read in the last year that you would that you would recommend?
1: Uh, Well, uh, a book I would recommend, it's it's not a new book, but uh, uh, now in the last year I had time to read it in more detail, Hmm. is uh, The Memoir of Ben Bernanke. Okay. Uh, uh, because uh, on the one hand this is uh, and this was a bit of a model, of course not <laughs> the same, the same kind of class uh, <coughs> uh, for, for my book because it is a mixture of, of personal memoir and uh, a, a kind of a short version of an introduction to monetary policy and then of course a specific discussion of the policy events where he had been. And I think this uh, this combination, for me, is a very interesting one, and uh, I would think this is a book that should be on the reading list of, of every economics course or uh, monetary policy course at universities.
0: Right. And, and uh, a book outside economics that you read in the last year?
1: Um, I have to say uh, what I, I'm starting or started is kind of rereading Books mm. that I have been uh, uh, reading when I was young, but that are too, volu- uh, too voluminous <laughs> for them to, <laughs> to read. It. And so I have started rereading Tolstoy, uh, War and Peace, yeah. which is uh, <laughs> a really fascinating story. And uh, I'm just, uh, I'm not finished, but I'm just in the midst of it.
0: Okay. Well, today, uh, Evald Navotny and I have been discussing his book, Gelt und Leben, published in October by Bram Müller. Evald, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thank
1: you. And it's, thank you for this interesting conversation we had. Thank you.